that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would give us eyes that see and hearts that feel. I pray, God, that we would embrace you. We would love the one that we see. And that you would shape us in these moments. It will take supernatural gifting of humility for us to not only understand your word, but to apply it. And so we ask, we ask for the stars in that sense. We ask for you to overcome our hearts, help our brains to be engaged, but more importantly, help our hearts to feel and our lives to obey. We know we can only do this because you're good. And that's what we bank on in these moments. We pray this in the powerful and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you wanted to quit? Have you? I remember growing up, it was piano. I could not stand piano. My parents were good to make me want to play piano, but I tell you, sitting down in those lessons, I could not, I could not stand it. And so to this day, because I did not endure in piano, I can't play the piano. <clears throat> the other thing that required endurance where I wanted to quit were sports. Sports, um, I was competitive, still have that drive in my soul deep down. But I wanted to give up many a time in playing sports. Whether it was why do I have to keep doing the same drill over and over and over? Why do I have to keep doing the same routine over and over? And yet, by God's grace, at least in the sport of tennis, I didn't quit. And it got me a little bit of money to college and a lot of joy. And so there's these contrasting comparisons even in my own life at a very surface level. But I ask the question again, have you ever wanted to quit? There's ramifications for quitting and not quitting. There's just no way around it. When we endure, there is usually a great grace at the end, but it's a lot of work. And when we quit, it seems easiest at the time, but it doesn't produce a lot of good fruit. And so Jesus has a very simple message for us today. Those of you who hear that, those of us who hear this, who have ears to hear, let us hear that endurance will be required in the Christian life. There's all kinds of things that are going to come at us. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be trial. There's even going to be things that are really good and attractive that so, so dull us that we want to throw in the towel on what's important. A lot of things that will come. His simple message is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We've got to keep going and endure and hold on to God's good word. So today, when I ask the question, why in the world did Jesus tell the very story I just read to you? Why did he tell it? That's a very helpful question to ask when you're reading the Bible, especially when you're reading through the Gospels. Why in the world is this in there? It's in there so that we would hold on and embrace God's word. And so here are 
a few things that I think we're going to take away from this passage today as we go through all 21 verses, and so I just want to lay them out for you. Number one, I think we're going to see, and I won't even say number one, just what we come to first, because this isn't in order of importance, it's just what things we will tackle. It's the power of God's Word. The power of God's Word. The second thing we encounter is the family created by God's Word. The third thing we encounter is sensing God's Word. Then holding on to God's Word. Bearing fruit through God's Word. And the end of the tunnel is the bright blessings of God's Word. You hear the common refrain, God's Word? It's what Jesus is trying to get at. The seed is the Word of God. I didn't make that up. He really helped us understand what in the world He's going after by telling us. And so what we want to see is all the multiple angles, all the facets of the diamond of the Word of God. And we will begin with the power of God's Word. Look at verses 1 through 3. Soon afterwards, he went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. Good news, another word for it is gospel. The, uh, the, one of the scripture writers, Peter, equates the word of God and the gospel. So it's the preaching of this good news, which is the word of God. It's bringing God's word to, to the people about a coming king who will bring in a coming kingdom. And so Jesus was going around spreading this news. That's what he came for, was to tell him about this reorientation of everything because he's on the scene. And the twelve were with him. And then verse 2. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities or sicknesses. And then we get this list of these women and their lives and how they were transformed. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now why in the world did he kind of hone in on these women and their lives? It's very simple. To show that when the good news goes out, For some, it will totally reorient their lives. The good news, the Word of God is powerful. It takes old things and makes them new. It transforms them. Let's just make sure that we understand what's happening here in the scene. You know, if if I were there sharing my story of how God's Word came in and changed me, I would be able to say, someone shared the good news of Jesus with me. It was my parents. And I heard it and I understood that I was a sinner in need of Jesus and I was willing to face my greatest fear which was being baptized. That's how I said it when I was five or six. And so I was just like, I'm willing to do that. And, and there was this sense that God's work was convicting me of sin and helping me push through fear and he washed me clean and made me new. And I would share that story and say that is a testimony of the power of God's word through normal people to change a little old soul like mine because he was going to do great things through everyone that he changes. But heck, I ain't got nothing on this lady right here. Mary Magdalene is like, okay, that's a good story for you. I had seven demons taking up residence in my heart. I mean, that's pretty shocking. It's like, okay, we don't hear that story very often. 
not something that you normally hear when someone shares their story of God's grace in their lives. But it was her story. It was a story that is shared with us to show the power of Christ. The power of His Word going forth. And as He was going about preaching this Word, it flipped people's lives upside down. And she went from being inhabited by demons to being generous with her resources. Because isn't that what it says in verse 3? And provided for them out of their means. She was found as generous and sacrificial. The next one, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, was Herod's household manager. Herod, a tyrant of a king, would kill people at the drop of a hat who stood in his way. Her husband was the manager of this ruthless king's affairs. More than likely, she's out on her own, not with the approval of her husband. But she has seen all of this treachery. She had a post of prime position, of notoriety. She could have stayed there, had all the materials she wanted and needed. Instead, God's word came, changed her heart, reprioritized her life, and she began to give away rather than mass things for herself. And she's found here following Jesus rather than the comforts of Herod's palace. These people, Susanna and many others, are given to us here because in that society, women were not as prominent as men. And here, yet when Jesus proclaims the gospel, he's saying those who were estranged. Luke really hones in on the estranged. The poor, the sick, the weary, these Women who were, should be estranged in that culture, God was changing them left and right. Was doing a radical work. He was making and rising to the level of prominence those whose society wanted to push to the dregs. God's word is powerful. And when it goes out, some will be changed. And I think that what we see here is a willingness a willingness of these women for their stories to be kind of laid out in the open. Some of you have gone through some messy pasts. Some things that you're not very proud of. Some things that incite shame were it not for the grace of God that has come in and washed you clean. I think there's a, there's a lesson for us here. That many times we only know the power of God's word when people are willing to share their story of contrast. What was once a story of living for everything that brought shame, now is a story that makes me only thankful more and more for grace. I encourage some of you. You have stories that need to be shared. And you don't need to live in shame any longer. Yes, you lived and I lived lives that we regretted. But that's the beauty of Jesus. Grace comes into regret and he makes you new. And he highlights his grace to take your story and upend it and use it for his name. God's word is powerful. And he encourages us to share those stories as we go. We now not only see at the beginning of this the power of God's word, but we actually see at the end of all that I have read, the family created by God's word. I want to go to the end of the section we're going for today, verses 19 through 21, and I want to read that. So Jesus, after sharing the story and giving the lessons and telling us we shouldn't hide God's word, we should let it shine forth, then he encounters his 
mother and brothers. Look at verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are standing outside and they want to see you. And he took this opportunity to teach them a lesson. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Many of us have heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water. It's this sense of, you know, if you're, if you're connected via blood, you should, be, you should stay loyal to them. There's a sense that blood is thicker than anything else. You should be loyal and connected. And Jesus totally flips loyalty on its head. And says, there's someone else's blood that is thicker. There's someone else's blood that unites in even a more firm way than biology. It is adoption into the kingdom of God by grace alone. It's the blood of Jesus who washes sinners clean. And when he does that amazing work, he unites you with other people who have that story of being washed by Jesus into one family. Isn't that what he's saying? My family is those who hear the word of God and obey it. We're family. And that family is deeper, thicker, more foundational than any biological strand that we could have. It's the family of God. It's the family that doesn't give up on each other quickly. It's the family that doesn't let a small disagreement or a few inconveniences or a few preferences divide or rip apart the family of God doesn't mean that things aren't hard it doesn't mean that you wish things were a little different but he doesn't say that my family is those who are perfect my family is one who hear the word of God and they seek to do it this is family this is what is thickest The Word of God is powerful to change, but when it changes, it brings us into one family. A bunch of different backgrounds, a bunch of different ethnicities, a bunch of different economic standings and social class, but one family. I was talking with a friend the other day. He has uh, got some connections in Botswana, Africa, and he was telling me about a a story or a phrase that they they use regularly in Botswana. The phrase is this. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. This is a message for our culture like none other. If you want to go fast, sure, go it alone. But you'll give out. You won't make it as far as you would if you went with family. If you went with the people of God. And this is why Jesus is anchoring everything that now he is going to tell us in this story to we must go together. We can't brave this alone. We're not wise enough. We're not strong enough. We're blind to things. We need the family of God. And so let's jump back to verse four and let's see now how Jesus tells this crowd that's gathered. He tells them a story and he tells them a story about the word of God. So let's look at the story. I just read it. I want to draw your attention to a couple things because he's going to tell the story and then he's going to tell what the story means. Very few times do we get such clarity 
It is. Here's the story. I know it confuses you. Let me tell you what it means. <laughs> I really appreciate that. So let's go for it. Verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering, people from town after town were coming to him. He said in a parable, life will be easy. Things will be great. Just follow Jesus. You'll have all the riches you need. That's not what he says. Instead, he tells a story that is intentionally cryptic. This isn't Church Growth 101, get a bigger church. His aim is with a massive crowd, probably thousands listening, people coming from all over, he hones in on what it takes to be a part of this family. It is hearing the Word of God and embracing it with all that you are. It's a hard message. And this is the story he tells. Verse 5, he tells a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell. And let me stop there. Many will call this the parable of the sower. The sower is not mentioned anymore after this. All you get is a few lines about the sower. It's about the seed and where it falls and how it's going to take root. This parable of the soils. The parable of the right conditions for the Word of God to produce mature fruit. His primary aim is not about you as a sower, although it takes people to speak the Word of God. That is the truth, and it will come up later in Luke. But right now, his aim is not to emphasize the sower, but to emphasize the soils. He says, the sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path, and what happened to him? You can read it out loud with me. What happened? It was trampled underfoot. Mark it in your brain. So it went out, landed on a path, trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Okay? Next type of soil, verse 6. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had what? No moisture. Mark that. It needed something to water it, to make it grow, to cultivate it. Verse 7. Third type. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it, and what are those next two words? Choked it. Choked it. And then the fourth context or atmosphere for growth, some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things, as he said these things, he called out, why don't we read this together? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear. That phrase is used all throughout the scriptures. When John approaches the, or talks about the seven churches in the book of Revelation. He says it to every one of them. He who has ears to hear, let the Spirit of God allow him to hear. It means there's something beyond physical hearing that is supposed to happen when you hear this story, when the story comes to you. And this is why I chose the phrase sensing God's Word. 
He is asking for us to implore all of our senses, spiritual ones that is, to embrace His Word. And here's where I get that. Not only from the verse we just read out loud, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's speaking of spiritual ears to hear, spiritual hearing. Let's keep going. Look at verse 9. And when His disciples asked Him, what in the world does that mean? (laughs) that's good that's good that's what followers do followers are like followers are not those who have it all together followers are those who are good with asking questions to their God they're humble enough to say I don't get it I need help okay don't be afraid to ask questions there's no way you know everything no way I don't and so if I come across that way forgive me I don't I have to do a lot of study to understand what's going on here When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, because they didn't get it, he did not say, you get on my nerves. Stop asking questions. He said, I'm glad to tell you. Let me tell you. This is our Savior. He's approachable. He wants your questions. And he says in verse 10, be astounded at grace. That's what he's basically saying. He says this. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables. Or for others, it seems confusing. For you, you're understanding depths and heights and nuances that others don't get. Others, it's just a parable. It's a story that's kind of confusing. But to you, it's been given insight. And clarity and understanding. He says, for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. There's a quote there from the book of Isaiah. That seeing that they may not see and hearing that they may not understand. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say that this parable is the seed, which is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. Now, what does he mean when he says this word is given to you? You get it, but it's it's almost hidden or not understandable for some. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they might not understand. What does this mean? Well, there's a few things we know about God's word. David tells us the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? Which means what? The word of God gives. What's a lamp do? Thank you. Yeah, I'm into conversation here today. I don't know if you can tell. I'm just trying to create some dialogue. I can see a little Memorial Day fatigue. So what we want to do is we hold a lamp and I turn it on in my living room because I need light to shine. God's word is a lamp. It it doesn't camouflage it gives light that's what the word of God does so if anything puts that light out it will be the darkness of the human soul it'll be the darkness of sin that has come into the world the light of God and his word is brilliantly bright but the darkness of sin in our own hearts in our broken world That is where things get concealed or choked out. It even says in 2 Corinthians that the God of this 
age, or the God of this world, meaning Satan himself, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. There's this sense of an aggressive attack of of blinding you from seeing what you need to see. This is what's happening here. He tells this story. And he tells it in such a way that his children will see and those who do not believe, who are clinging to their own ways, they will not understand. It's, it's another example of what he says in Romans 1. I will give them over to the lusts of their heart. It's not they are running towards God and God says, hey, I'm going to make things confusing for you. It is that they are running away from God and he says, I will withhold my light from you because you are running away and you are not turning towards me. And so he tells it in parables. And here he is telling his children, I have given you eyes that see and ears that hear. And that should make you astounded at grace. But there are some, there are some who don't run after me. And instead of having spiritual eyes that see or spiritual ears that hear, they're growing hard. And I thought I was reading through the Psalms and I, I hit Psalm 115. Psalm 115 is, is a, the psalmist's insight into a, the golden calf incident in Exodus. When they begin to erect idols for themselves to follow just their own way. And I want you to listen to Psalm 115, how he talks. Psalm 115. So the believer, the believing psalmist starts the psalm this way. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The believer says, I want you to be famous. I don't always feel that way. You don't always feel that way. But the general trajectory of the Christian's life is, I do want Jesus to be famous. I want him to be loved and adored. I want him to be central in my life. But those who are clinging on to other things as their Savior, it's compared to an idol. Look at verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. You can imagine that they've crafted with their own hands out of silver and gold a figure. A figure that has a head with eyes and ears and hands and feet. You got the image in your brain? Okay. Here's what he says happens. What's this idol like, verse 5 of 115? They have mouths, but they don't speak. They've got eyes, but they don't see. They've got ears, but they don't hear. Noses, they don't smell. They have hands, but don't feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Here's the clincher. Those who make them become like them. That's what's shocking. You wonder why you seem numbed or dulled to the things of God things sometimes get more confusing you don't understand you don't know which way is right sometimes it is because we have clung so tightly to other things as saviors relationships material possessions status just being right so that no one would see that we're wrong. Whatever it is, we cling to it so tightly that it begins to dull us. To numb us. 
And what does that dulling and numbing do? It renders our eyes unable to see the beauty of Jesus. It renders our ears unable to hear God's good word and understand it. It renders our noses unable to smell. Isaiah says, smell the garments of his righteousness. It means we have trouble seeing what's right and wrong and what's good and bad. Our feet don't want to walk in love. Our hands don't want to embrace in love. We grow cold. We become like the ones that we worship. And we grow dull. I don't know if you know this. There's a town in Scotland. And that town in Scotland is called this. Dull. And they have created a partnership with Oregon, because there's a city in Oregon called Boring, Oregon. So you have dull Scotland and boring Oregon. I don't think they're going to, either one of them, use this in their advertising campaigns internationally. Come to dull Scotland. Now, why do we laugh at that? Because we don't want to be dull. Now, if I show you this group of pencils here, right here, it might be hard to see. Which one of these would you pick? It's hard because none of them are sharpened. They're all dull. When you go to pick a pencil, I usually pick a mechanical one, right? But when you go to pick a pencil, you want the one that's sharpened. When Jesus tells us this story, He is pushing upon your heart because your heart doesn't want to go after what is dull. When you buy a TV, you don't want an image that's dull. You want an image that's brilliant. Jesus knows that your heart doesn't want to go after what is dull. And here he is saying, if you grip on to these other things, your heart will grow dull. You will not sense with all the aliveness that he wants you to be alive with. Eyes will grow blind. Ears will get stopped up. Noses will get stuffy. Hands won't want to move. Feet won't want to walk. You won't want to spiritually sense God's word. And so, he says, I want to tell you now. I want to tell you about this seed, which is the Word of God. And as I lay it out before you, I want you to hold on to it. But as I was reading this book uh, by John Piper entitled, The Peculiar Glory, I found this quote extremely helpful as he talks about the Word of God. He says this, The Bible to me was never like a masterpiece hanging in a museum that I viewed this way and that way, looking at it in this angle, looking at it this angle. He says, rather it was like a window or like binoculars. What do you do through a window? You do what? You look through it. Binoculars, you look through it to see clearer. He says, my view of the Bible was always of you through the Bible. So when I say that all along the way, my view was getting clearer and brighter and deeper. I mean the reality seen through the Bible was getting clearer and brighter and deeper. Clearer as the edges of things became less fuzzy. And I could see how things fit together rather than smudging into each other. Brighter as the beauty and impact of the whole message was more and more attractive. Deeper in the sense of depth perspective. Photographers know this as depth of field. 
Things stretched off into eternity with breathtaking implications in both directions, past and future. You could sum this up with the phrase, the glory of God. That's what I was seeing. Let me stop there. Long quotes can wear you out. I get it. The Bible is not something that you just learn. It's something that you look through to see something. To see the glory of God. And the more you're in it, the clearer things get. The more your horizons are broadened. The more joy begins to come up because of seeing. He's using the same thing that Jesus is doing when it comes to the Bible. The Bible is meant for us to see glory. That's why you read this. It's not so your brain can be smarter than your neighbor's. I don't care if you can quote to me 15 other passages that somebody else can't. Do you see the glory of God in those passages? That's what he's after. That's what this is written for. That you would see and love the greatness and beauty of God. Now, I do want to read just a little bit more of the quote. That is what was changing to meet the challenges. This was not an intellectual effort. Seeing is not an effort the way thinking is. It happens. You may need to exert yourself to walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, but when you get there, seeing is not work. You might have to wake up in the morning and open this and wipe the sleepy out of your eyes and get a cup of coffee and maybe throw it on your face because the caffeine's not getting there quick enough. And you might have to sit here and you might have to read the same verse three and four times because you don't understand what you just read. But when God does that, And all of a sudden, the heart is like, I get it. I love him. That didn't take effort. That was a gift. The gift of seeing. And so finally, he says this. God was holding on to me by making the view supremely compelling. If you are standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, it is proper to say you are held by the view, the sight, the vista. That is what the Bible was doing for me. It was holding me. I was not holding it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This word is so beautiful. It holds. God holds his children through his word. He holds you through this. He sustains you through this. He who began a good work in you. Who began it? He, God. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And yet, as we quickly run through the parable of the soils, he's also going to tell you to hold on. I'm holding on to you so that now you can take courage to not let go and to hold on to me. We have a responsibility, and this is what he presses on in the parable of the soils. Holding on to God's word. Not only are we to sense God's word, but we are to hold on to God's word. Hold on to God's word in the face of opposition. Now, he tells us this as a warning passage. Can you put the guardrail up? This is how the Word of God is meant to protect us. Okay? Now, when you see that rail that starts here and runs all the way around, what does that rail tell you? It tells you, 
don't go on the other side of me. Right? So if you're over there, right at that little beautiful curve, that guardrail has three functions. I'm going to protect you from going over the edge. Two, it's to tell you, don't be foolish enough to get on the other side of me. And sometimes the guardrail actually stops you from going over, but if you keep hitting the gas, it won't stop you forever. And you'll go over the ledge. Protection, warning to stop you, but only momentarily. This is what the warning is in this passage. The parable of the soils is having these three effects upon God's people. It wants to protect you. It wants you to know, stop, don't go over the edge. And it will stop you sometimes. And here's how it does it. The path. He says the first place where the seed falls is the path. Look at verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from the heart. Devil comes, takes away the word from the heart. How does the devil do that? The devil is known as the what? Anybody know? The deceiver. He's a liar. You can't trust him. That's what he does. He deceives. And so, what does the devil do? He seeks to deceive you. He seeks to entice you. This is what the devil does. This is a promise here that opposition is going to come. Opposition is going to come. And we must hold on to God's word in the face of opposition. Now hear this. We must stop believing the lie that things on this earth are going to come easily. Honestly, it is a lie that usually only Americans are believing to the degree that we're believing it. We must stop demanding for things to come easy. The world, hear this, the world has never worked that way since Adam and Eve sinned. Ease has never been the path. But a whole generation in America are rising up and that if something isn't easy, then it's someone else's fault that I'm not doing well. Someone else's fault that I'm not making more money. But are you doing the hard work of being generous and prioritizing God's priorities with your money and managing your money well? Are you doing that? It's someone else's fault that I don't have time alone with God. It's the kid's fault. It's busyness. It's the man's. But are you doing the hard work of declaring priorities, saying no, and getting alone with God in a busy world? It's someone else's fault, usually God's or the church's, that you can't get something from God's Word. But are you doing the hard work of prioritizing Him, sitting with Him, coming ready to hear, asking Him to change you? Here's the deal. You're not alone. You are loved. You are cherished. The strength you need is ever before you. But He will not pick up the Bible for you. He won't tell others to wait for you and He won't say no for you. 
He will be faithful to love. He will stir your heart. He will not leave you alone. Sometimes he'll even frustrate your plans because they're about to destroy you because he's that kind of kind. He'll intervene. He'll pour out grace. He'll help in time of need. He hears your prayers. He will answer your prayers. He will pray for you. He will give you strength. He will show off his strength in the midst of your weakness. But he will not do everything for you. He asks you, stop. Be still. Run after me. Hold on to me. All the while, he's holding on to you. Friends, hold on to God's word in the face of opposition, but you've got to expect that there will be opposition. And here, his story says, the devil is going to bring opposition. So hold on to God's word in the face of deceit and enticement. Deceit and enticement. The devil is a liar, and he says... That he can promise you the way of peace. And it doesn't happen. We must expect difficulty. We must expect it. Because if not, we will dive into self-pity because things have gone hard for us and we will give up. We will. I've been tempted. Have you? Yes, you have. (laughs) You have. I have too. I have too. God wants us. He wants us to be humble enough to believe that He has a plan even though we struggle to see what it is. So when He lies to us and says you can be like God, when you're in His Word and when He entices you that this can provide what God cannot, don't cling on to it. It'll make your eyes blind and your ears dull. Become alive by framing everything according to his word. Also hold on to God's word in the face of trial. Look at the next soil, verse 13. It says, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Hold on to God's word in the face of trial. Do you remember what he said about this soil when he first told it? He said it was soil that would have no moisture. No moisture. That's why the roots didn't go deep. You receive it with joy, but you need moisture. What is the spiritual moisture we need? It is the pool of God's Word. The fountain of God's Word. It says in Psalm 1, the one who meditates on the Word of God day and night is like a tree planted by what? Streams of water. Being near to God's word is like being near streams of water. But times of testing will come. And the question is, will you hold on to him? Will you endure? Will you not give up or will you run away? The scriptures tell us over and over that times of testing actually grow us up. They're necessary so that we don't cling to other things, but we cling to Christ. But here's what's immensely sad. Many of you don't believe me when I say that. But there's a best-selling book right now. It's called Option B. Option B is a book written by a clinical psychologist. And it says this. All people can heal, and some people are even launched 
to a more meaningful place after experiencing trauma. So I'll say it again. It's a woman who is looking into trauma, and she says something that's right. She says, all people can heal, and some people are even launched into a more meaningful place after experiencing trauma. Clinical research shows this, she says. Growth is actually more common than its better-known counterpart, PTSD. But that's what gets the press. Now, why? Why, when she says something that the Word of God has been saying for years, do you believe her and struggle to believe God's Word? Because clinical research shows it. What is our authority? I've seen too many clinical research things that change like the wind. That one's going to be true. Because God's Word tells me it's true. That it is through trauma and through pain that God brings growth. He can bring healing. And sometimes people are even better because of it. Even though the thing is meant to be hated. The trial, the suffering, the trauma. And so, when I am frustrated, when you are frustrated that the world is going crazy. And there is suffering all around you. I want you to look one place. And it sounds like a Sunday school answer, but let me just pull it out for you just a little bit. Look to the cross. There is no suffering that you and I will see that is worse than perfection dying unjustly. Nothing. So if the greatest atrocity possible is answered, by Jesus loves you. And He has a plan that although evil seems to be winning, it clearly was defeated and actually only served to set humanity free. If that's the answer for us looking at the greatest atrocity in all of the world, Christ dying, then it is the answer in the lenses through which we look at all of suffering. That is this. Jesus still loves you. He has a plan that although evil seems to be winning, it clearly will be defeated. And in the case of the cross, it actually served to set humanity free. I remember when we were told that our little girl had this life debilitating disease, we hated it. We prayed against it. But here's what God did. He thrust us on our face through tears upon His mercy. We wouldn't have done that were the diagnosis never given. It served to deepen our faith and not shallow it. It served to show us angles of God's mercy we would have never seen had the sickness not come. The pain has given us compassion for others that we never knew possible. The disease has exposed the barnacles of sin that were so attached to the core that we would have never pried them off unless the sickness had been diagnosed. Pain showed us mercy. Depths of evil meant by the devil to uproot us only served to thrust our roots deeper into him. Broken arms served to make you happy for usable arms. The need to fast before surgery only makes you thankful that you can eat food. Financial troubles have taken couples and singles to evaluate their spending in ways they would not have evaluated their spending if the struggle didn't come. 
Don't waste your pain. Don't waste your cares. Don't squander your suffering. It is there because evil is real, but it is there because God is at work to give you more of Him. He loves you. Don't trust your physical eyes. Don't lean on your physical ears. Don't surrender yourself to your physical taste buds. Don't depend on your sense of physical touch and do not cling to your sense of smell. Instead, cultivate spiritual senses. It happens in the Word. And He says, He says, hold on to God's Word. That's where the roots will grow deep. It needs that moisture so that when trial comes, you don't give up. Hold on to God's word in the face of busyness and plenty. The other soil that didn't go so well is the soil in verse 14 where it says, And it fell among thorns, and are those who hear, but they go on, and their way, on their way, and they are choked out by three things, none of them bad. Cares, riches, And pleasures of life. This one was an interesting turn as I got to look at it more. What chokes out many times your clinging to God's word, your trusting him, is not always the trial or the devil's opposition. Sometimes it's the good things in life. They're called cares because they fill up your time. It's not cares as if things, these things are bad. It's the fact that you're running to 15 different sport events. It's the fact that you're trying to figure out how you're going to eat three meals a day. It's the fact that you're going to try to ha- figure out how you can work overtime and still give time to your family. It's the fact you're trying to figure out how you're going to prioritize the things of church and still do everything else in life and still love your neighbor and how you're going to find time to sit on the couch and rest and watch that favorite movie how you're going to make relationships with friends how you're going to how you're going to how you're going to and you're just like overwhelmed it's the cares of life and then he says and riches do that too because the more you have the more you got to manage money is not evil it's the love of money that destroys you but it is what it is it's what paul says when he talks about singleness I wish that you would remain single because when you get married, you will have more cares upon you. That's not a bad thing. It just is an it is, an is thing. It's what's going to happen. And then he says it's the pleasures of life. The good things of life. They can do this. They can bring cloudy things in front so that all of a sudden you're seeing the thing rather than the giver of the thing. And what is so remarkable is all of these good things work together to suffocate. Literally choke you. So what's the takeaway? Don't enjoy. Get rid of all your money. Don't do anything. Just sit on the couch. I don't think that's the takeaway. The takeaway is he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It is don't allow these other things to become priority. Don't neglect the priority of Christ. Don't take him and tag him on in your time with him or in your giving or in your thought life. Don't tag him on because when you do, he will become choked out by everything else. Make first things first, C.S. Lewis says, and all secondary things will be fuller to be enjoyed. This is what Jesus is saying. It's a hard truth, but the result 
is that if you don't do this, your fruit will not mature. Tell me which strawberry you would rather eat. Which one? Yeah, the red one. That's right. What's this one? It's not ready. It's not ripe. And he says here that the cares of the world, the riches of life, and the pleasures of life, they lead to fruit that does not mature. Doesn't taste good. And all three of these soils are people who hear eventually, but let go. And prove that they were never children. Remember what I've already said. Those who are children will have ears to hear. And you are being held by my great God and your great God. He holds you. That's your confidence. But that does not mean that you are free of all responsibility. He is inciting us all to hold on to him. You follow that? Your hope is in His holding, but you must hold. So that finally verse 15 can happen in the heart. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word, here's where I got the holding language, they hold it fast in an honest and good heart. What's a good heart? It's a heart of faith. That's what's good, a heart that trusts. Not a heart that does perfectly, but a heart that trusts and bear fruit with patience. That's where I got the idea of endurance. We must endure, patiently endure. It means we won't get everything we want in quick, immediate responses. It's going to take endurance. And so he wants us to bear fruit through God's word. Fruit that matures. Fruit that applies God's word. I was meeting with a man the other day who just lost his daddy. And he just constantly was crying. It was a deep pain because his dad loved Jesus. And it was generations of loving Jesus. And he talked about how his dad's dad loved Christ. And that's how the, the generations began to just seed into him. This man is a pastor. He's a dear friend of mine. And I was talking to him and he said, there were stories of my granddad. Stories of my granddad that he would get paid and as he was walking home, between where he worked and getting home, it was about a mile he would walk. And by the time he got home, he didn't have his paycheck anymore. Regularly, he was giving it all away. So much so that his wife had to say, I need you to give me your paycheck. <laughs> She's like, we ain't paying bills, you know, we're, we're going to go under. But he looked at me and he said this. Now, Sean, you tell me, who's the better theologian? Me or him? Who struggles to buy someone a cup of coffee versus one who walks across and can barely be restrained from giving all that he has away. What's the lesson there? Not go and give everything away between now and the time you get home. The lesson is just what we saw with the women at the very beginning. God's word is powerful. It creates sacrifice. It creates a reorientation of life. You love what he... He loves and you hate what he hates. It's the maturity of fruit that grows. It's something he does. But oh dear friend, find joy by swimming in this pool. Swimming in God's word. Because those who do it will encounter the bright blessing of God's word. And that's when he says in verses 16 through 18. Don't hide the lamp under a jar. Or put it, no one does that. 
They want it to be seen as light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, and here's the verse. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. But the one who has not, even the things he thinks that he has will be taken away. What's that promise? I found it in Psalm 32 as a great summary. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And so he says, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose sin is covered. He's talking about the blessing of obedience. You cling to him. You hear well. You stay in his word. You seek to obey. Mature fruit will come. He'll assure that. Joy will deepen. He'll assure that. You will receive blessing because you trust in the Lord, not the sorrows of walking in wickedness. So, friends, don't give up. Don't give up. He won't give up on you. You cling to him and his word. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I thank you that you don't give up on us.